What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. So much for turning the page on last quarter's concerns. We kick off the week and the quarter with bond yields picking up right where we left off, surging higher. The 10-year Treasury yield rising above 4.7% today, its highest level since 2007. Our market guest sees opportunities in bonds right now because he still sees a recession ahead. Should you step in front of this freight train? We'll discuss that coming up. Plus, good riddance. That's what VC Sam Lesson says as another formerly high-flying IPO files for bankruptcy. And now Birkenstock is preparing for its public offering. What the fallout from the recent spate of lackluster IPOs means for Silicon Valley and beyond. And a bullish call on one housing name, supposedly well-positioned if the economy slows down. And the analyst behind that call is here to make his case. Let's start with the markets, though. Dom Chu has the numbers, or should I say the carnage, Dom? Uh, It's carnage in some parts, more than others. But technology and consumer discretionary and some of those media telecom-type names are holding up relatively better, which is why the Nasdaq is outperforming just marginally higher by about one-tenth of one percent. The composite index, 13,239. But where you're seeing the real downside pressure is in the Dow Industrials and the S&P 500, down about half a percent for the S&P. The Dow Industrials down about three quarters of one percent. The Dow, by the way, 33,272. The S&P 500 is down 23 points. 4264. At one point today, we were actually up about 12 points on the day, down roughly 28 at the low. So again, tilting towards at or near the lows of the session right now. So losing some steam in that broader measure of the overall kind of stock market. You want to talk about some of the confusing cross currents that are happening right now in the macro kind of side of things, the bigger picture trade. The difference between short term and long term U.S. government bond yields has now less inverted itself. So it's actually steepening out a little bit. You can see it's been steadily climbing higher. The highest levels here, you can go all the way back to May around here. So what's interesting here is it's the sell-off in the longer-term side of the Treasury market, which is pushing those long-term yields up at a faster pace than the short-term ones. Some don't think that's a very good story to tell when it comes to a steepening yield curve, but we'll see what happens. Also, gold prices Higher interest rates, maybe more inflationary fears. You think gold will be doing better, but gold, no. It's at the lowest levels that we've seen. You've got to go all the way back, kind of to March over here, to see where gold prices are. $1,847 an ounce for COMEX gold futures. And by the way, we are now below the 50- and 200-day average prices on a rolling basis. Some may think that that's a more bearish sign, but it's a six-day losing streak for gold. Higher dollar values make it less attractive. All kinds of things weighing on gold. But then one part of the market that we've talked about is maybe a risk trade or a risk aversion trade or a risk on type trade. Bitcoin prices now back above 28,000. We had a trading range kind of here for a while, and now we've kind of broken out right above there to back to 28,000, up 3% on the day so far. It's now back above its 200-day average price or just kind of touched that above its 50 All kinds of interesting moves, Kelly. There's nothing one, there's no one thematic thread that you can weave through all of these 
everything is in transition. So the question becomes, what does that tell us if everything is moving in directions that are maybe not seemingly related? I don't know if that signals a train to change in trend for the economy, but it's certainly something some traders are watching, Kel. I think all of these inflection points are absolutely dumb. Thank you very much, Dom Chu. And markets are on alert for any sign the Fed might be backing away from its higher for longer mantra on rates. And Fed Vice Chair for Supervision Michael Barr is speaking on the economy right now. Let's get out to Steve Leisman, who brings us those headlines. Steve? Kelly, thanks. Yeah, uh, the Fed's uh, Vice Chair for Supervision Michael Barr will say uh, is saying that the key question is not whether the Fed hikes again. It's how long the Fed remains restrictive. Full effects of tightening, he says, are yet to come. That's him weighing in an important debate among Fed officials, and he's more in the, we're not done with the lags yet. He said the Fed can proceed carefully at this point. The economy, though, is showing more resilience than he expected. He sees a higher probability now that the Fed can avoid a large increase, can avoid large increases to the unemployment rate, and that is without the degree of job losses you might usually see with the amount of policy tightening that they've had recently. He says they're making progress, bringing labor supply and demand back in to balance and he expects GDP to moderate below potential for next year with some softening in the labor market. It's important, he says, for the Fed to monitor how tightening is affecting bank credit. He says core loan growth is stagnant in banks of all sizes. Financial stability risk can be a threat to achieving the dual mandate, he says, and the monetary policy cannot be indifferent, Kelly, to financial stability risk. Kelly, I'm hearing very gently and subtly perhaps a kind of speaking out at, at the Fed that maybe that last rate hike doesn't need to take place and they'll replace that with remaining higher for longer. I don't hear anybody coming off of that particular part of the mantra, but I do, between John Williams last week and maybe Michael Barr today, I'm not hearing a whole lot of support for that second rate rate hike of the year. All right, Steve, or stay right more, there. More rate hike this year. Right, in November, or maybe November. Uh, stay with us, because the latest economic <clears throat> report this morning did show the U.S. manufacturing declined softened somewhat last month. So are we turning a corner? Our next guest doesn't think so, saying incoming data will challenge the soft landing narrative, and he still expects a mild recession next year. Joining us now is Jay Bryson. He's chief economist at Wells Fargo and CNBC's Rick Santelli of all days, Rick. Really the perfect time to have you here. Rick Santelli on set with us for this discussion as well. Uh, welcome, everyone. Jay, quickly. So what do you make of the ISM report this morning? It was a little better. Yeah, it was, it was a little better, Kelly. Um, you know, it was good to see, you know, it didn't uh, decline anymore, but we still are, at least in terms of the headline, still in negative territory there. So, you know, maybe at best the manufacturing sector at right now is, is roughly flat. What is your larger concern about the economy? So I think the larger concern, uh, Kelly, is, is we're going to continue to see, I'll call it a passive tightening of monetary policy as we go forward. I mean, our guess is the Fed is probably done. Maybe they go one more rate hike. I mean, who, who knows, right? But I think what's more important is we'll probably continue to see the inflation rate come down. And so what happens is the real interest rate will just passively continue to rise here, and that exerts real headwinds on real economic growth. And so I'm just concerned that the economy's operating a little bit above potential right now. The Fed has to keep a tight policy stance to bring inflation down. And there's, you're going to get this passive tightening of policy as we continue to go forward. And you'd think Rick Santelli, with all of this happening from the old playbook, anytime you feel there might be a softening in the outlook, what happens? Long-term bond yields decline. 
Well, the complete opposite of that is happening right now. So do you think that, that bonds are looking to the ISM data and, and, and taking a lift on that, or, or is something else driving them higher here? I think something else is driving them higher. I think if we take a step back and just acknowledge the fact that the Fed kept rates much too low for much too long. And I think when you have a decade of basically zero interest rates, the normalization is going to be bumpy. And I think what's more, when the labor market seems to be the new conundrum, and you have to make many assumptions to try to explain some of the strength in the labor market that's so counterintuitive, but I keep coming to the same conclusion. I think econometric models and seasonalities are ultimately going to be under review. And the problem with that is, is that should this become a binary issue, meaning that one day it looks great and then all of a sudden it doesn't, that's going to really be an issue for the Fed. And in terms but here's, of- here's here's what I want, not, not to interrupt, but I almost wonder, Rick, if the only way out, so rising yield, this, this whole situation is so interesting because we just had shutdown talks and a shutdown that didn't happen over spending cuts that were not even going to happen. And we wake up today and we see long-end yields moving higher as a result. So the, you know, the only thing that I see arresting that increase is if the economy really slows. I mean, would that bail us out here? Because at least finally there would be some buyer of treasuries. Right now there aren't enough buyers, it seems, for all the supply out there driven by all of these government deficits. Yes, whether it's $2 trillion in T-bills or the fact that the government just keeps on spending. And you know what? Let's make it even easier. I really do think a good chunk of what's going on today in 7s, 10s, 20s, 30s, boons almost at 3% is all the same. If you want to keep borrowing like drunken sailors and spending, at some point the market's going to extract the cost. And we are now seeing that in live view. Right, but it's not, I don't think anyone in Washington even, do you think they realize what's happening? I, I don't think anybody in Washington realizes the difference between daylight and dark, dark time. <laughs> I, I honestly just don't see that there's any change. And when you consider one of the issues why labor might, might appear to be so strong, it's almost like the third rail. What do my sources tell me? That the government was too generous. Programs have outlived COVID are too generous. That you've taken out a segment that should be working that can get along just fine without working. So maybe self-inflicted. We need to talk about these things more. Well, one way, so Steve, the interesting thing about this as well is that this isn't an area the Fed wa ever wants to wade into, right? They never want to get involved with talking about government spending choices and the deficit and the debt. But are these hints about financial stability alluding to the fact that they realize that the long end is starting to behave a bit unhinged? I think that's an interesting comment, uh, Kelly. And it was sort of going in the back of my mind. Why is Michael Barr talking about this issue of the impact of rates on financial stability right now? And I think there may be something to that, that you have to go carefully here and wade carefully. And, and I find myself agreeing more with Rick than disagreeing with him, which is an unusual place for me to be. Um, He's holding his in, heart. In that I, I, I'm dramatically um, disappointed in the Yellen Treasury on two reasons. One is that when Join she was crowd. in the Federal Reserve, she, she, when she was at the Federal Reserve, she talked long and hard about the unsustainability of the debt. Here she was in a position to do something about it. And from what we could tell, did not necessarily argue forcefully or was not an important force in the arguing against the issue of putting the U.S. on a path of unsustainable, even more unsustainable debt. It was, all, it was on that path before they, uh, Biden took office. It was continued under Biden and the Yellen Treasury. And, and I think that's something that we haven't talked enough about here. Um, what I do think when I talk to people in the bond market, 
Uh, this has not been a repricing of inflation expectations. It's a repricing, as somebody said earlier, of somewhat of growth, but also of the supply. Yeah. And that's what's going on right now. And that's why until we see some sensibility that there's, there's some control on the supply, I don't see, think we're going to see a top necessarily in the 10 years. And supply is just shadow boxing debt. Okay, that's what we're shadow boxing, debt and deficits. Because if those were smaller, supply wouldn't have to be so large. For sure. And Jay, again, this isn't, you know, normally when we check in with you guys, we're talking about all the inputs to GDP, right? What's consumption? What's investment? What's net exports? Okay, maybe what's government spending, but it's been a long time since we've had to talk about, well, what's the deficit picture and, and how do net interest costs kind of a- exacerbate that? Or what's the f- sustainable fiscal position? I mean, so what, do, what does the model look like from here as we try to figure out the impact this all could have on, on growth and on the economy? Well, certainly, you know, higher real, real yields at the end of the yield curve there is going to put a damper on mortgage rates or push up mortgage rates, put a damper on the, on the housing market. So it's another thing, you know, higher real yields, whether it's at the short end, or as I was talking about earlier, or at the longer end, as Rick and, and, um, and Steve are, are alluding to, both all those things are going to put uh, headwinds on, on GDP growth as we go forward. And so you remind me, you guys see a mild recession beginning first quarter of next year? Yeah, our, our, we have negative growth starting in the first quarter of next year. Um, um, employment growth starting to turn negative around the same time as well. Is there a single factor, Jay, before we go here that would make you more bullish on the economy? I think the f- single factor would be if I knew that productivity growth was really accelerating here. Um, it's productivity growth that's really hard to figure out in real time. But if I, if I could be convinced that productivity growth was accelerating mm-hmm. here, then that's, that's always good news for the economy. It can, it can grow sl- uh, faster at, at a lower interest rate uh, or a lower inflation rate, um, and that would help you grow out of some of these problems, the deficit problems that we're talking about. All right. Very, very good point. We'll leave it there, John. Gentlemen, thank you all. Jay Bryson with Wells Fargo, Steve Leisman, and our own Rick Santelli. Rick, we'll see you again soon. Now to more granularity on those Treasury yields. As the 10-year has now topped 4.7%, it's back just off that level right now. That's a new high since October 2007. And remember, like Jay was just discussing, this sets the rate for U.S. mortgages, among other things. And some of Wall Street's most prominent voices, including Pershing Square's Bill Ackman, expect the yield could hit 5% in a matter of weeks. Let's discuss what that means for stocks and bonds. Joining me now, Dan Suzuki is Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors. And Bob Michael is J.P. Morgan's Head of Global Fixed Income Strategy. Really great to have you both here. Bob, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but you're the star of the show here uh, in Bondland. You guys seem to truly be driving uh, everything going on in the markets. What do you think the next move is? Yeah, today's a bad day to be a bond. Prices are are going down and and investors are are running for the hills. We don't think, pardon me, we don't think what we're seeing is anything unusual. Um, In fact, if yields weren't backing up, we'd be a little bit surprised. We've seen this before. It's interesting you managed, you mentioned 2007. Let's go back to 2007. The Fed finished hiking rates in June 2006. Yields rallied a lot. Then in June 2007, yields went up well over 100 basis points, retested the old highs and kept going. And at that time, the Fed was declaring soft landing. We're seeing the same, we're seeing the same things now. So are you worried? Well, so it sort of sounds like what you're saying is 
yields can keep moving higher, but also we can see a much weaker economy. So as that tug of war shakes out, do we hit 5% next? Do we go above that level? Do we pull back? What does that, what does that mean? Well, we are seeing a much weaker economy right now. If we look at core personal consumption expenditures, the Fed's key measure of inflation, and look at the last print, take the last three months and annualize it, you're at 2.16%. So you're pretty much bang on the Fed's target. If we look at housing, which is one of those things that is most interest rate sensitive, housing affordability is the lowest on record mm -hmm. since the data's been accumulated in 1986. We, we're in the sort of Warren Buffett camp that you want to buy when things are on sale. Things are on sale now. We have clients coming in to buy. We think it's a good strategy right now. Well, the things you're buying are kind of muni bonds, some agency mortgages, like you said, some of the local emerging markets. Dan, let me turn to you for some context on what this all means for equities. How much of a headwind is it? We're seeing, obviously, for certain sectors like utilities, a pretty substantial one. Yeah, Kelly, I think um, it's always a tug of war when it comes to the equities between you know, the positive impact of, you know, better growth and, and commensurately higher interest rates, you know, with the higher sort of impact on liquidity, you know, valuations and interest costs. I think for most companies, you know, they actually take the higher growth with the higher interest rates, which I think is a big component of what's happening in markets this year. But as you know, you know, there's an increasingly big component of the market that's, you know, negatively, that's more sensitive to higher rates, which is the higher valuation components, as well as the bond proxies, as you mentioned, Kelly. So yeah. I think it's really, it's not a uniform winner and losers story. So you really got to be a, a pick where you t where you play, play your battles. Have you guys, am I correct in thinking you've been somewhat cautious on the Magnificent Seven and does the trading complex today, even though the NASDAQ is outperforming, lead you to stick with that view? Yeah, I, I think that's right, Kelly. I mean, I think that, you know, returns are greatest where capital is scarce. Risks are greatest where capital is expensive and concentrated. You know, that's, you know, where the risk is expensive and concentrated. So we, we think it's better you're better off avoiding those areas and and keep in mind that these are cyclical companies and so you know we think that profits at bottom we think that they will benefit from a higher profit growth outlook but there's you know tons of other companies that trade at a fraction of the multiple that are going to accelerate faster and benefit more and that's where i think that investors are best served you know putting their dollars you look or you're looking energy industrials materials in particular value kinds of areas of the market bob it's really kind of um, gaining traction this idea that central banks globally are going to keep hiking or talking about higher for longer or whatever until they quote unquote break something. Do you share that view? And what, what does that mean? What does that look like in practice? Well, I, I think you're right. I think they're intending to talk tough until they see inflation really down at around their targets and, and a wider range of things. But they also talked kind of tough that uh, inflation was transitory at the end of 2021 and walked into 2022 and started hiking rates. So I think you have to put what they're saying aside and you've got to look at what's going on. The consumer, which drives the economy, has depleted their excess savings. It's below where it was pre-COVID. They're trying to maintain their level of spending. They're putting more on revolving credit. You're seeing credit card usage go up. They're paying in the mid-20s percent annualized rate for that. That's unsustainable. We think this is where you go in and 
and buy bonds. If you're a municipal bond invest, investor, a general muni bond fund at a minimum yields 4.5%. A year and a half ago, it used to yield 2%. If you're a taxable investor, go in and buy an aggregate bond index. You're up over 5.5%. A couple years ago, that was about 1%. Bonds are cheap now. Real yields are very high. They are. And uh, if I could paraphrase, you're saying basically the downturn will trump deficits, will trump the government deficits when driving yields higher. We'll leave it there for now, gentlemen. Thank you both. Appreciate your thoughts today, especially, especially on a day like this. Bob Michael and Dan Suzuki. Dow's down just under 200 points. Coming up, we'll take stock of Birkenstock ahead of its public debut. Can the clog and sandal maker help unclog the IPO market? And can venture capital survive today's high interest rate environment? We'll talk to Slow Ventures' Sam Lesson about that next. Plus, this rate is getting a big upgrade today. After sliding 12% in just the past two weeks, the analyst behind the call joins us why he says single-family rental market is the way to play the housing slowdown. Tweet me if you can guess that chart, by the way. And as we head to break, here's a broad look at what's going on in markets this afternoon. As yields have punched higher, the 10-year earlier through 470, we saw the most pressure on stocks. Dow went from almost positive to down 200. S&P's down half a percent as well. NASDAQ is still up 15 points, and the Russell 2000 small cap's hardest hit, down 1.6%. The exchange is back after this. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to the exchange. Birkenstock targeting just over a $9 billion valuation in its anticipated IPO this week. The German footwear maker planning to sell about 32 million shares between $44 and $49 a piece. That would raise about a billion and a half for the company. It's just the latest trying to jumpstart the IPO market after the bankruptcy filing of Smile Direct Club and mixed performances from Arm and Instacart. My next guest says the public markets don't trust VC-backed companies anymore, and the tech IPO window could be closed for some time. Joining me now is Sam Lesson. He's a general partner at Slow Ventures. You're, you're, spo- you know, you're supposed to extol the virtues uh, for society of, of venture capital, Sam. What's, what's happening? Look, I'm a huge believer in venture capital. That's you know my profession. We do it at early stage, seeding companies from zero and, and hopefully delivering some big returns as we have. I just think we've got to live through an interesting period where, especially late stage capital, the funds have gotten so big. What we've seen is this, they're competing with the public market. So the best companies, they keep private because why not put more of their own money into them? And we've seen this, this continued march from Chamath SPACs on through mm-hmm. of IPOing all the trash. And it's not surprising we get a little bit of lack of trust here. Right. And I, so the question, though, becomes, 
is if the retail investors kind of once burned, twice shy. And, and, and Smile Direct was an IPO, I think, in 2017. So to the larger discussion we're having about this flip in markets, this is not just the COVID and post-COVID IPOs. We're talking about companies that went public five, eight years ago, in some cases, all during this kind of zero interest rate era. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the big, big, big picture, there's a bunch of reasons why a bunch of consumers look at IPOs recently, especially tech ones, and say, big meh. I mean, with the AI trends, et cetera, it's very easy to buy the big names, um, which there's no upper bound on valuation anymore. So why not buy more Microsoft or Meta or things like that, where, they, where the impact is clear? But the bigger story is just, you know, historically, the private markets for capital were small. The IPO was the destination, right? And in that world, they served a really useful purpose, kind of pulling companies along until they were big enough and in a good place to IPO. What we've seen, though, is that the private markets and private market capital have gotten so big that why not take a Stripe or a Canva or any of the really high-quality private companies and keep them private basically forever, keep doubling down on more of them? And then what gets IPO'd? What gets IPO'd is the, you know, it is the Virgin Galactics via a SPAC from Tramoth, you know, putting trash out in the market. It is the BuzzFeeds, you know, the Blue Aprons, mm -hmm. the Rent the Runways, all these companies that they were fine shots on goal, but they weren't great companies, right? Um, but if you tell the public markets over and over, this is the product we're offering, at some point, if you're a retail investor, you're like, why would I bother, right? Um, you know, this is clearly an adverse selection problem. So I, I wonder what happens next, because the exit is so important for venture capital, for private equity, for, you know, so many parts of this whole ecosystem. Does that exit just become selling to another firm and, and still able to kind of realize those multiples? And also, does that then mean, like you said about the public markets, do we worry about the quality deteriorating over time or was the real worry when all of this stuff was kind of getting in there in the first place? No, I think you've got it exactly right. You know, if you look at the history of private equity, there was a long time, you know, I was actually even working early in my career when the idea of a private equity firm selling to a private equity firm was verboten, right? right. You sold to the public market. And that's obviously completely changed. Now that's most of the business, right? As you sell back and forth to each other at higher and higher valuations as you figure things out and keep the good companies private. You know, I think that's certainly the case. Venture capital hasn't gotten there yet. Um, but you could totally see the trend line moving in that direction in yes. terms of where it goes and a splintering of the markets. I think it's terrible for capitalism, candidly. Um, I think it kind of hoards the returns to kind of people who can afford to be in private funds. Um, I think it really hurts the public market. And I do think there's a real threat long term that you end up with this dual class world where, sure, the trillion dollar companies are public. Sure, public market investors there's a certain scale that private capital can't reach, and that's kind of what the public market is. But the vibrancy of the young, open, free public markets you know, that existed pre-Sarbanes-Oxley, pre-kind of market reorganization is right. just gone. And the thing that I worry about is, because you're exactly right, but if they then, if the industry takes these arguments to Washington as a way of saying, this is why you should open up access to more individual investors to private equity or or venture capital for private equity in particular, right now is kind of the worst point in the cycle to do that because it had such tremendous growth. It's now seeing pressure on returns. It owns a lot of highly leveraged small companies that may not survive this environment. So, you know, you, even if you're right for the next generation, you know, if they open that those floodgates right now, you feel like people would now get sucked into those industries maybe after all of the, the best years have been had. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's just a lot of unintended consequences that have happened since the tech crash and since 08 in terms of how things have been. People have tried to regulate or protect investors, and we've ended up in a very sticky world. Um, you know, again, wealth inequality doesn't help either because basically all of a sudden you do have private institutions with not many LPs that can compete with the public markets, mm -hmm. right? So there's a lot of swirling in, in implications here. I want to be very clear. There are high-quality companies being started. There are high-quality companies being founded. Um, we like participating in those. I'm not anti-venture capital. But we've ended up with a very weird dual-class system where you know the only stuff that's making it public are the worst companies, right? And it isn't just COVID, although COVID, Chamath, SPACs, et cetera, certainly accelerated it. Yeah, well, and we don't want to cast aspersions on Birkenstock either. A little bit, that's a little different story. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the Birkenstock story well enough. I know it's not a VC-backed startup. Right. <laughs> the first thing to check. Sam, thank you very much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Sam Lesson with Slow Ventures. Coming up, government shutdown averted but not solved, and now the House speakership could be in flux. We've got the latest developments from Capitol Hill, and we'll talk to strategist Dan Clifton about that and the fiscal fallout. Stocks are just off session lows right now, down 173. The 10-year yield hugging 466 as things stabilize here somewhat. The exchange is back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update, the 1st of October. All 27 European Union foreign ministers arrived in Kyiv this morning to show support for Ukraine. This is the first meeting of the foreign ministers held outside the bloc. The meeting follows the passage of the U.S. bill that contained no new aid for the country over the weekend. The union's top diplomat said the joint meeting should be understood as a clear commitment of the European Union's uh, to Ukraine and its continuous support. The United Nations Security Council expected to vote on whether to send a multinational force to Haiti to combat gang violence there. The resolution would authorize a one-year deployment of a multinational armed force with Kenya leading the operation. Haiti first requested the intervention back in 2022. The force would be funded by voluntary contributions. The U.S. has already pledged $100 million to fight the violence there. Elon Musk's social media site X is testing a live stream shopping partnership with Paris Hilton. The new feature on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, of course, uh, will allow users to watch a live streamed video, talk with other users and shop at the same time. The announcement did not detail when the live stream will take place or what items will be sold. But Kelly, there it is. Back to you. Irresistible. Tyler, thank you very much. I'll see you shortly. Coming up, here's one more look at the mystery chart today. It's a REIT hitting its lowest level since April. But our next guest says that's where investors should take shelter amid the housing slowdown. The name and the bull case for it next.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Evercore ISI is projecting a recession in the first half of 2024. And one analyst says one place for investors to take shelter is shelter, or at least the single-family rental space. They upgraded shares of invitation homes to outperform today, saying the residential REIT will hold up in a downturn, especially given the affordability crisis. Joining me now is Steve Sakwa, the analyst behind that call. Steve, it's great to have you here today. Welcome. Great. Thanks, Kelly, for having me. This is the same invitation homes that we all thought was responsible for causing the affordability crisis in the first place. In other words, buying up a lot of homes, renting them out, that kind of thing. Well, look, the, uh, the housing market is certainly very large across the U.S., and there has been an institutionalization of home ownership uh, with invitation and one of its uh, closest peers, uh, American Homes for Rent. Mm-hmm. But they own a very small piece of the overall housing market. And, um, you know, I, I think there's been a shortage of housing in general, which has created, I think, this uh, dynamic of pushing up housing across the board. Yeah, I was reading some research from Barry Knapp this weekend as well, and he thinks that, you know, the Fed had a lot to do with it as well. That, you know, they bought so many mortgage-backed security. Anyway, that's a whole other story. So what what is the case for owning invitation homes now into what looks like a really difficult macro environment? Yeah, so look, at the end of the day, shelter is is certainly something that we all need, whether it's going to be apartments, whether it's it's homes in general. Uh, and we think that right now, the uh, the differential in uh, home ownership pricing versus renting is quite wide. And that uh, does play well into both invitation and, and their closest peer from a uh, from an affordability standpoint. So whether, you know, folks want to buy or rent, that that's a big choice. But there is a big spread right now, and it does seem to be favoring renting over uh, home ownership. Exactly. And we've seen that spread where now actually renting looks like a much better deal. It's just that a lot of um, actual buyers don't seem interested. So uh, how does invitation leverage that? Well, their occupancy is still very strong, Kelly. They're sitting sort of plus or minus 97% across the portfolio. I think the number got as high as 98%, uh, which is a very, very high number across any property type to stay at that level. Uh, but, you know, right now, uh, we still think that the portfolio can average somewhere in the 96 to 97% range. And they've had very good uh, success pushing rents. We, we think that those uh, rent numbers are going to moderate. And we're seeing that really across the entire resi complex where uh, whether it's apartments or single family rental, uh, the increases that these companies have achieved over the last few years is not at a sustainable level. But we certainly think something in the kind of mid single digit range is uh, is affordable and, and certainly achievable. And as I said, the spread between owning and renting still favors renting right yeah, now. It, it makes a lot of sense, especially if we now see massive pullback in multifamily and, and housing supply because of the pressures that banks and others are going to be under in the kind of the near-term macro storm. I kind of wanted to get those fundamentals from you because the next obvious question to ask is, what about higher interest rates? I mean, even if they had the best kind of supply and demand dynamics in the world and rent growth and all of that, what is going on as you watch the 10-year, like we all do, just continuing to march higher? I'm not even talking about what that means for mortgages, obviously. I'm just talking about for the REIT business, broadly speaking. Yeah, look, that's certainly been a headwind, Kelly, and and the tenure was up about 75 basis points in the in the third quarter, and that certainly put a lot of pressure on REITs overall. The sector itself was down about seven percent, and invitation in particular was down about seven percent. So that sort of created the opportunity we thought to get in. Uh, you know, we've seen this big march up in the tenure. Hopefully, we're getting close to the end of that uh, march higher. 
Uh, we think that if, if things uh, do start to slow down economically and, and whether we get to the soft landing or even a modest recession, if the 10 years lower, let's say six to 12 months from now, we think that takes some of the pressure off of the, uh, the REIT multiples. Uh, and as I said, we still think the supply demand dynamics are still pretty favorable for the single family rental. And so we see it as being a little bit of a heads I win, tails I win uh, for this company uh, moving forward. All right. Shares in the 31 range. Your price target is 37. Uh, and we'll see if we do get some rates uh, to stabilize. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Yep, thanks for the time, Kelly. Steve Sockwell with Evercore ISI. Still to come, shares of this name up as much as 16% today. You've heard about it a lot here. It's a favorite of Ariel's Charlie Babrinskoy, but he was trimming profits last week. Oh, it's a double mystery chart day. We'll tell you this. I know everyone can guess this one, but still, go ahead. Tweet me at KellyCNBC. We're back after this with the Dow Down 187. Welcome back to The Exchange. A quick check on the markets. Dow is down 165 points. So we're off the session lows we first saw when the 10-year yield popped above 4.7%. The S&P is down four-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq's up a quarter percent now. And the Russell 2000s are the worst performer, underperforming all of the major averages. The small cap's down 1.6% today, and they've now turned negative year-to-date. It's also sitting well below its 50- and 200-day moving averages. Here's another look at that 10-year, by the way, which was up at 4.7%, highest since 2007 earlier on. 467 now, 30-year yield as well, hitting 4.815% today. That was the highest since 2010. Elsewhere, Las Vegas' newest entertainment venue, The Sphere, officially opening this weekend. I'm sure you saw on social media all the footage from inside. It looked beautiful. Lots of performances from U2. Shares of its parent company, Sphere Entertainment, are up sharply, 14% today, and that's off the highs. And that was our mystery chart. Best day since spinning off MSG Entertainment in April. As you know, you've heard a lot about this one from Charlie Babinskoy, who was trimming it last week. Speaking of spinoffs, Kellogg's North American cereal business is now trading as a standalone company under the name WK Kellogg or ticker KLG. Now, as part of the separation, Kellogg is renaming itself, and I'm not... Kelanova. <laughs> How did I not trademark that first? And will continue to trade under the ticker K. It's mostly the snack part of the business. Think Pringles, Pop-Tarts, Cheez-Its. Kelanova shares down 6%, by the way, to their lowest level since Feb of 21, and down 17% since announcing that spinoff last summer. The original proposal was supposed to be three companies, cereal, snacks, and plant-based brands, but weaker interest in the plant category led to that business staying under the Kelanova umbrella. And that includes the Morningstar brand you see there on the left. Here's what Steve Cahillane, the CEO of Kelanova, told Squawk on the Street about the nuts and bolts of the new business. 80% of our portfolio is now snacking in international businesses. Very high growth, growing like a snacking uh, powerhouse that it is driven by five of our largest brands, Pringles, Rice Krispies Treats, Cheez-It, Pop-Tarts, Eggo Waffle, you know, all high growth, very differentiated, very advantaged brands. And we think the market will appreciate the underlying strength of that business more as Kelanova than they have historically. Well, Kelanova is the second worst name in the S&P right now, adding to pressure on consumer staples today. But utilities are by far the worst sector, down more than 5%. Nextera, the worst name in the S&P at the moment, down 11% now. It's been a lot of pressure on the stock lately, and Wells Fargo just slashed its price target from 80 to 33. 
Nextera trading around 50 at its lowest level since March of 2020. High rates the culprit there. Coming up, we are now 43 days away from another potential government shutdown after Congress passed that bill at the 11th hour to keep the government running. And while it's funded for now, Strategist Dan Clifton sees big red flags on America's balance sheet. The implications for policy and the bond market next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Congress now has until mid-November to work out a deal to keep the government funded after they passed a continuing resolution over the weekend. But with 90 Republicans voting against that measure and Kevin McCarthy's speakership possibly in jeopardy, will it be even harder to get a deal done next time? Emily Wilkins joins us now with that story. Hi, Emily. Hey, Kelly. Well, a lot that's happening in the House today, but probably the number one thing is whether Kevin McCarthy is going to be able to keep his speakership and moving forward. Congressman Matt Gates, he's threatened for weeks now that if McCarthy worked with Democrats to pass a stopgap spending bill, that he would move on a motion to vacate, which basically is the first step to potentially ousting McCarthy. Gates spoke on the House floor today, saying that he would be bringing up such a motion later this week and saying that McCarthy needs to answer questions about Ukraine aid. Now, this is an area that's really split Republicans. McCarthy has said that he is supportive of sending additional funding to Ukraine, but Gates and a number of other members say that that shouldn't be the case. Listen to what Gates said just a few hours ago. I would ask that these questions be answered soon because there may be other votes coming today or later this week that could, could be implicated by the answers to these questions. Members of the Republican Party might vote differently on a motion to vacate if they heard what the speaker had to share with us. Now, there are a lot of unanswered questions about this point, about how a vote to potentially oust McCarthy would go. It's not clear how much support that Congressman Gates has to oust him. It's not clear if Democrats would come along and be able to help McCarthy get the votes to put him over. And it's absolutely not clear that if McCarthy did get removed, who would replace him? A lot of unknowns at this point. But Speaker Kevin McCarthy does not seem to be sweating it. He talked to reporters when he came into the Capitol this morning and basically said he's got other things to worry about. I'm just going to focus on doing the work I'm supposed to do. Uh, I think this is a, a question to the institution itself. I know in the past, the other leaders together always <coughs> believed that this should never be in play, but I'm not worried about it. I, all eyes are on House Republicans as well as House Democrats who will need to decide at some point this week whether or not they want to back McCarthy and if they do, what their price is going to be. Kelly? Absolutely, Emily. Thank you for now. For all your reporting, Emily Wilkins, we appreciate it. My next guest says the fighting over a shutdown is merely a proxy for a larger debate over America's finances and sees austerity as a distinct possibility in the near future, especially as bonds continue to sell off. Joining me now is Dan Clifton. He's head of policy research at Strategus, a Baird company. Dan, welcome to you. Uh, just, just riff for me. I mean, what are you thinking yeah. as, as this all plays out? Well, Kelly, first, thank you for having me on today. As you know, we've often talked about this idea is that when your debt servicing cost hits 14 percent of tax revenue, the bond market starts to act very funny. And we hit that number in July. The 10-year yield's gone from 3.96 to 4.6, really just in two months or two and a half months. And now we're here having a children's debate about whether to remove the Speaker of the House. Right. When you look under the surface, what we have are two competing thoughts. One, brinksmanship. And two, whether we need to get the fiscal house under control. 
When you have a low debt servicing cost, you're more worried about brinksmanship. Now the market's saying, well, wait a minute, can this group of Congress be able to start getting our fiscal trajectory in a better place and don't really believe that they need to? So we're in this constant struggle, this budget trench warfare, as we like to call it, that will continue through the remainder of the year. And overhanging that is whether you know who's going to be the leader of the Republican Party. Hmm. So I do think that you're starting to see the market begin to worry about these debt issues in a way that we really have not seen since 1981, 1982, right. the last time our net interest costs, our debt servicing costs hit these levels. And this is a really critical stage that we're facing as it's, we want to start thinking about the fourth quarter. It's fascinating because literally everything you've warned about has started to play out, almost yep. textbook. But no one else in Washington, the spending wasn't even part of this fight. You know, it's has all they did was cap spending for two years at the deal back this spring. The deficit, meanwhile, kept getting wider than expected. Treasury had to increase its issuance, and that's kind of what's, what's gotten us to this situation. But still yep. no one in Washington seems to be realizing or taking notice or acting with any urgency. So what's the pain point? What level of the 10-year or what, what has to happen in the stock market? Exactly right. The conversations I'm having with investors this morning is that there's no realization, no wake-up moment, and so that we'll continue this trajectory until something breaks. That's the concern. I think you nailed it perfectly. But think about this. We've been in a period of stimulus for 25 years. We could cut taxes, increase spending, Obamacare, Trump tax cuts. We can do it all and not increase our debt servicing costs. And that's over. It takes a long time for members to realize that. In fact, there were meetings going on in the Hill last week talking about doing an unpaid for tax bill hmm. at the end of the year that both Democrats and Republicans support. Wow. That seems less likely to us, but it just tells us that the that what's happening in the markets has not caught up with Congress yet. And at some point, we're going to get there. A 5% Treasury, which was unthinkable for most investors a few months ago, looks very, very real today on the trajectory that we're going. If you line up yields with today, with 1987, they look very similar before things ended up breaking. Not saying that's our base case, right. but you're starting to see those worrisome signs. I would also note, listen to what the Fed was talking about today, that financial stability needs to be wrapped up into monetary policy. Those are important comments being made by the Fed because they're telling you that they're starting to be stressed back into the banking sector, something we haven't seen since SVP. So those pressures are there under the hood. They probably got to go a little bit more before people realize that. You're asking people to change their 25-year framework. It's changed. They just haven't recognized it here in Washington. Yeah, and looking through the projections, and this was from February, but basically the deficit, which was 7.5% of GDP this year, a record non-crisis yep. high, is expected to be 5 6% for the next 10 years, and half of that is interest service costs. So. Yes. And that was, again, from February before rates are where they are now. So I, the problem is, it seems to me, it's, it's hard to pull that back, right? When you look at the spending this year, there was really no one factor driving it. There was a lot of factors, and it's about three points higher than normal. And you look at the Absolutely. revenue side, and it's basically in line with normal, around 17% of GDP. So can we raise revenues enough, or can we really reduce spending that much? I literally, I don't, I don't understand how, we're, how that's going to happen. It's, it's going to be tough, especially before a presidential election. And then next year, Kelly, as you know, you have all of the Trump tax cuts expiring on individuals. So higher AMT, higher income tax rates, lower child tax credit. That's probably going to have to be paid for no matter who wins the presidency, something that we haven't done before. So there are a lot of pressure points here. I think it's going to be gradual. And in 1981, what started to happen was Social Security's uh, solvency started to pull forward. 
that ultimately forced the Greenspan Commission hmm. to come up with ways to make Social Security solvent. That's probably what we're going to see after the 2024 election. But we're a long way away from there. And you're starting to see the pressure building underneath the hood. And I just don't think there's a realization here in Washington. You're going to need financial conditions to tighten more before they get the joke. Right. And if there's a recession, then the revenue side gets worse. And so even though bond yields should fall, they might not. It's 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 unpleasant to ponder, uh, but but we'll see where we go from here. Dan, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Kelly, thank you. Appreciate it. Dan Clifton with Strategus. That does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. Ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.